I'm going to burden you today to turn to three passages, and if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Acts 22, 12 to 14. I'm going to quickly summarize the content of there with an emphasis on 14. Then we are continuing to fan out Jeremiah 9, 23 to 4, which is the LXX. 22 to 3, and then Romans 5. Pick up a little bit where we left off last week. Romans 5, 16. Going to break into Romans to show that God does judgment and righteousness in the earth. First, Acts 22. Before we get started, Paul Matthews, and Colleen still require teachers for the preschool, as far as I know. I haven't heard that they've received them yet. So I'll continue to answer, to announce this. If you're interested in making an investment in the next generation of bearers of the glorious gospel of Christ, see Paul Matthews. Better call Paul. And I think Vision Beyond Borders is still active for the last time today. If it, well, it's too late if nobody brought anything. But you were very generous, according to Ralph Anderson. Quite a few bags of clothes have come for the Romanian children. So very grateful of your, as your usually generous selves. Acts twenty two fourteen. And this is something that's been hovering in my soul for quite a long time. After the confrontation with Jesus the Nazarene, the risen Christ, on the outskirts of Damascus, there is a part of this story that's often neglected. Paul was then blinded, of course, in that confrontation and had to be led by the hand by his entourage into Damascus. And there he met a man, well, a man came out to meet him, actually, and stood by him, and his name in the Hebrew is Hanhanya, and make that Hanania, which in the more familiar Greek is Ananias. Now, people say he was a Christian. People say a lot of things about him. But the Bible says about him that he was an observant follower of Torah. And he was highly regarded by the whole Jewish community in Damascus. He came and he stood there with Paul. And Paul recollects this now in Acts 22. Paul's own words. He says that this man said, Brother Saul... Receive your sight. In that very hour, Paul said, I received my sight. Then Hananiah said, The God of our fathers has chosen you for himself. And please notice this little phrase, to know his will. He has chosen you for himself, the God of our fathers, speaking to him as a fellow Jew an observer of Torah, chosen you for himself to know his will. And that's what I want to emphasize today, both at the beginning and the end of the message. This is the word which is found also in our Jeremiah passage, T-H-E-L-E-A-M. A. Somebody fixed this pen so it actually looks kind of neat sometimes. So, Thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A. Extremely important word. It means will, the will of God, but it means more than that. So, to know his will, the God of our fathers has chosen you, Brother Saul, for himself. To know his will, Thelema, a word that's used in Romans 1.10. 2.18, perhaps most notably in 12.2 and 15.32, but it's also used in a universal context 
in Ephesians 1, 9 and Ephesians 1, 11. And they bracket what I consider to be the most important verse regarding the Father's universal purpose in the entire Bible, Ephesians 1.10. But then notice what he says, and to see the righteous one, emphasis on righteous, to see the righteous one. The God of our fathers has chosen you for himself to know his will and to see the righteous one. Please notice Jesus the Nazarene in 22.8, right up above, is called the righteous one. How significant is this for Romans? Romans 1.17, the righteous one shall live by faithfulness. Who is that? Is that any old person who decides to believe instead of disbelieve? Or is that Jesus Christ himself who lives as a result of his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. And when he lives, he says to all the human race, because I live, you live also. You will live also. As in Christ, all will be made alive. Put these verses together like John fourteen nineteen and 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. Juxtapose them. Romans 1, 17, the righteous one, I'm insisting on a Christological reading of that rather than just a general reading, any old righteous person. The righteous one, prophecy from Habakkuk 2.4, shall live by faithfulness. Now, his own faithfulness, that's, that's the key verse of Romans in many regards. So God chose you out for himself to know his will, to see the righteous one, And to hear a voice from his mouth. To actually hear him speak words. Now this falls right into place both with Romans and Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Which now for the sixth time in earnest I'm trying to show really seems to distill the message in Romans. So we read once again Jeremiah 9, 23. That's the English. The Greek is 22 and 23. Don't get confused. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his or her wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his or her strength. The rich person must not boast in his or her wealth. Instead, if someone boasts, let him or her boast that he or she understands and knows that I am the Lord who does mercy. We looked at that part. And judgment and righteousness in the earth or over the earth. The earth is the horizon of his exercise of judgment and righteousness and mercy. Please note that. That's where we are now. And then, please notice the last phrase, which we may even get to today. Because these things constitute my will, says the Lord. Guess what the word will is? You're right, thelema. Thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A. These things constitute my will. Now to Romans 5.16, where we're going to break in again to a central passage in Romans that illustrates just how does God do judgment and righteousness. Mercy is almost easy. That goes right to the key verse of Romans, one of the climactic key verses, 11.32 that he may have mercy on all. He encloses everyone in the maximum security prison called disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That's the heart of the matter. So mercy is easy, but righteous judgment and righteousness are not so easy. So I selected this passage because both judgment and righteousness seem to come together and that they're executed by God according to his will, over the earth, seems to be very clear in this one passage that we're breaking into, and we've already seen it so far. 5.16, the gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. The gift emphasizing God's sovereign and free action of giving, dorema. On the one hand, one sin brought 
judgment. There's the word judgment for us. Same word as in Jeremiah 9.24, crema. Resulting in, and I would supply this word to fill in the ellipsis here, the sentence of condemnation. The word there, kata crema, condemnation. Two different words. Crema, judgment, may mean to condemnation or it may mean to acquittal. Kata crema means to condemnation. But crema can mean a judgment or a sentence of condemnation to justification. You are condemned to eternal salvation. That's a word that actually one of Shakespeare's comedic actors said by accident, but Shakespeare was intending something else, preaching the universal gospel of Christ. Never saw that in Shakespeare, did you? Well, we might even hit it at one of these times. On the one hand, sin brought judgment. Now, where did it bring judgment? It brought judgment to all over the whole earth, all of mankind born in Adam, who is called the man of the earth, earthy, literally dusty, the man of the earth. First Corinthians fifteen forty-seven to 49 picks up on this, really 45 to 49 really picks up on this splendidly after 1522. Resulting in the sentence of condemnation. But on the other hand, and Paul said, this is all out of whack. This isn't a comparison that's exact and precise and symmetrical. It's all out of proportion. Because the gift is so much more than the sentence of condemnation. The gift of righteousness is so much more. The righteous act of Jesus Christ is all out of proportion to the one act of Adam and the effect of the one act of Adam. Those who tout the doctrine of hell are actually saying that the one act of Adam is much more important than the one act of Christ. And I'm getting more and more the itch to teach the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to probably hit you with that someday as a surprise and say, not Romans today, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, because it's starting to come together in a way that is indisputably not revealing an afterlife scenario. In fact, Jesus tells it just to shut down the whole idea of an afterlife scenario of a man in flames and another man resting and a bifurcation of humanity into two different classes, etc. It's the opposite. But notice this. He says, on the other hand, the gift, he uses another word for gift. Whenever Paul stacks up different words to describe the same thing like dorema and charisma and like he's going to do later for Will, thelema and eudokia and bule, when he stacks up every possible word that means basically the same thing but it's slightly nuanced, you know he's after something here. The gift, the dorema, here the charisma. Coming after many trespasses brought the sentence of acquittal. That's how I translate in this case only, justification, in the special sense of the opposite of the judgment to condemnation, all out of whack, this being a judgment to acquittal. After one sin, the whole human race, all mankind and Adam are condemned. The many, the all are condemned. But after the commission of an uncountable number of sins, the gift of righteousness comes through the one act of the one man's obedience. It's all out of whack. You can't compare them. In other words, it's incomparable. And so he says in verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one, that's the representative man, the single inclusive representative Adam, death reigned. You can capitalize death here in accord with the apocalyptic view of Paul. Death reigned through that one man. Again, if you jump to 15 of 1 Corinthians, in Adam all die. Just as, for if the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one man, how much more, it's all out of whack here, how how much out of proportion will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness, there's Jeremiah's word, I exercise righteousness over all the earth. Reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. 
Now, in case there's any puzzlement here, verse 18 is the final nail in the coffin of pseudo-fundamentalist orthodoxy. Verse 18, so then as through one sin came condemnation to all people, that's all without exception, so through the righteous act of one came the rectification of life or the justification that is the gift of life. We have life and righteousness, righteousness and life as a gift to all people. I exercise judgment and righteousness over all the earth. Well, when did you do that? At the cross of Christ when he was suspended over the earth. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. All to myself. That's John twelve thirty two. in case you forgot. Now the emphasis on all, all caps, here is intended to break down the biases among the saints in Rome by which various groups think of themselves more highly than they ought, which leads to judgmentalism and the despising and disrespecting of others, counting others as a really no account at all. That's what was going on in Romans. So Paul's after something practical here. We're hitting that with a vengeance on Wednesdays and Thursdays. 519, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners. And many equals the all in verse 18. There's an interchange here. Paul does it on purpose. The all is the many. The many equals all. We've already seen that worked out in many different ways. For just as the disobedience of the one man, that's a single bearer of the human destiny, Adam, many were constituted as sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many were constituted as righteous. They were made righteous ones. That's how God executes judgment and righteousness in all the earth. Because these things are my will, God says. These things I'm delighted in. If you were to invite God to lunch and say, what is it that really you really, really love to do? He would say, I love I delight in executing, doing mercy over all the earth, doing judgment and righteousness over all the earth. I delight in it. So here's the upshot of Paul's universal homardiology. Again, we're dipping into Wednesdays and Thursdays. Universal homardiology simply means that Paul teaches that all have sinned. Romans 3.23, 5.12. And a universal soteriology that parlays automatically. It has to parlay into a universal soteriology, which we call unashamedly, unashamedly universal salvation, which Paul brings to bear. He brings both all sin, all have sinned, all have received the gift of righteousness he brings those two truths to bear on the walls that separate different cell groups of Christians in Rome. And today, he brings it to bear on differing denominational walls to break them down. To answer the prayer that they may be one, Father, even as we are one. Now, I want to finish this verse or this passage because it's extremely important to the whole epistle of Rome, Romans. For those who think in Rome that some kind of observance of the law grants them superior status and prestige over others. Now, all the saints believe that Christ died for their sins in Rome. Some, however, were influenced by a doctrine that taught that there is some weight to circumcision and that that weight even 
tends toward rectification or justification or, and sanctification and life. And some didn't. And so those who leaned that way tended to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, and they judged others who didn't observe days and didn't eat kosher and didn't keep themselves separated from the Gentiles in terms of dietary laws. And so they judged others. The others, either Gentiles or Jewish Christians, that were free from those regulations tended to despise those whom they called weak, that were still clinging to weak elements. Paul's crushing this, the walls that separate them. Verse 20, moreover, the law slipped in as a side issue. You guys want to make an issue of the law? Paul said, I'm going to tell you where the law came in. It slipped in as a side issue. That's my translation. So that the trespass would, and you'd think if you were on one side there in Rome, the trespass would cease. The law was given so that the trespass would cease. The law says, stop doing that. Start doing this. You shall not have any strange gods. Stop it. You shall not commit adultery. Stop it. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You'd think the law came in that the, the trespass would cease. But Paul says the law came in that the trespass would increase. Ouch. But where sin, hey, harmatia, sin, capital S-I-N, superabounded. Already we have superabounded. It's not that sin abounded and grace abounded more or superabounded. Sin superabounded. The law, and you find all about this when you see a, a speech and character in Romans 7, 7 through 25. You see somebody who's trying to be righteous by the law, and he says, or she says, when I go to do good that I love to do, I do the evil that I hate. And it goes on and on and on until this curvature in ad se, curvaturae in ad se, comes to a climactic point and screams, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then Romans 8, there is therefore now no katakrima, no judgment to condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on from there. So the law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would increase. But where sin superabounded, grace, we could say hyper superabounded much more than that. To the end that just as sin reigned, in death, so grace will reign through righteousness. There it is again, righteousness. I will execute righteousness, do righteousness in, the all, in all the earth, resulting in eternal life. Don't lose here the sense of all, because Paul is saying in context, results in eternal life for all the coming age, the life of the coming age through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the context, it demands that he's still thinking about the all. This is for those who boast in the law. Romans 2.23, Paul says, so you call yourself a Jew and you boast in the law, he says. Not to all Jews, because all Jews didn't think that way, but to a Jew possibly a powerful teacher, and to an attitude that was trending at the time through certain books like the Epistle to Aristeus and Wisdom of Solomon, a book that was also right at the same time as Romans. So then, to those of you that want to boast in the law, you're Christians, you believe Jesus died for your sins, but you still see some kind of value that justifies you through circumcision, kosher laws, keeping of days, 
feasts, honoring new moons, etc., etc., giving up things for land. Oh, wait a minute, I threw that one in. But you think that you want to boast in that. Let me tell you, the law entered the whole plan of God as a side issue, not the main issue. This is going to hit a climactic point in Romans 10.4, in the, what I call the big 10.4, good buddy. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end. That means two things. He's the consummation of it, and he's the end of striving for righteousness through legalistic means at all. God has made him to be righteousness for us in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Not declared righteous, made the righteousness of God in him. That'll boost your self-esteem. Who are you? I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. You say, where do you get that? 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know that verse. You memorized it by now, didn't you? If you've been a Christian more than a year, you should have. Ouch. Now, the law entered to increase the trespass. Why? The law is impotent to bring about righteousness, Paul said in Galatians 3.21 and 22. The law was impotent to bring about righteousness, just as it was certainly impotent and totally incapable to bring about life. God, on the other hand, is not only capable of bringing about righteousness, he is also capable of bringing about faith, producing it, evoking it, kindling it, And he's also capable of taking the dead and raising them from the dead and taking that which doesn't exist at all and bringing it into being in Romans 4.17. God does that. So grace abounded much more. It hyperabounded more than the superabounding of the trespass to the end that grace now reigns over the earth through righteousness, which is Christ. Because God has made him, not the law, to be righteousness for us. We'll get there in Romans 10.4, but it's already in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is the righteous one for us. Christ is the end of the notion of the law for righteousness. And the consummation of the law, which is now reduced to a testifying role. What does the law have now as a purpose. It is reduced to a testifying role. It testifies of me, Jesus said. You read the scriptures day and night, he said to those who are opposing him. You read it all the time, all day, because you suppose that in the scriptures you're going to find eternal life, but you don't come to me that you may have life. The scriptures have now, the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, Jesus said in his post-resurrection appearance, all of these testify of me. Luke twenty four forty four. The law has been reduced to an attesting role. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, Jesus said. I haven't. Stop thinking that way in, Rome, in Matthew five seventeen, But rather to fulfill. I fill them up with their true meaning. I fulfill them. I'm the end of the law in the sense that I am the consummation of its purpose. And so, this is a testimony of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered and entered into his glory. Jesus said it to his, oh, slow-hearted and slow to believe, dull, dullards, he said. Ought not Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? Like the prophets said, haven't you read the prophets? And then he finally opened their eyes that they would understand the scriptures in Luke 24, 45, meaning the only way to understand them is to see Christ in them, to see them in the light, with the light on, the light of Christ. He's the one who suffered to enter his glory, the knowledge of which glory, Habakkuk says in 2.14, will one day fill the earth. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God that emanated from the face of the righteous one, which God chose Paul to see, the righteous one. 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that emanated from his face into Paul's heart is the light in which Paul wrote Romans. He had the light on when he wrote Romans. It's the light that is in the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which the God of this age has blinded the minds. You think there's opposition in getting this gospel out, and you wonder why? The God of this age has blinded the minds of those that are disbelieving, lest they should see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the gospel of the glory of the Christ. Glory that will one day fill the earth. I delight, God says, in doing mercy and judgment and righteousness in all the earth. All the earth will be aware of, without end, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of the man, Christ Jesus, who is also God, the divine Son of God. My whole prayer for you lately has been that you will experience the felt presence of the Son of God. Once that happens for a moment, you're never the same. But it'll happen all the time in the new creation when it's finally consummated. Eternal life is the life of the coming age, which is the age that has already come in the Christ event, in the resurrection of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Now, listen carefully. Eternal life, it's okay to use the phrase because it's life from God to believers, and it's everlasting. Eternal life, both in Romans 5.21 and 6.23. Let me take you down this Romans road. Must of necessity be for all. The wages of sin is death. For how many people? All. So the gift of eternal life is for how many people? All. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you look about eternal life and see it in Romans 5.21 and 6.23, both of necessity must be for all because Romans 5.18, the rectification of life or the gift of righteousness, which is life, comes to all as surely as condemnation came to be all and to all in the first man. Rectification, better word than justification usually in Romans, is a setting right. But it's also a making right. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He wasn't declared to be sin so that we could be declared to be righteous. He was made to be sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Justification is not the declaration that we are righteous, which leaves us alone in the world to sin and rebound, sin and rebound, sin and rebound, so we're on this trampoline for the rest of our lives. That's not what God does. Rectification, justification, is the making of us to be righteous God sets right those who are dead in sins by making them alive. What's the problem with you? I'm dead in sins. What's the solution? I'll make you alive in Christ. And that's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Ephesians 2.5. When we were dead, while we were dead in trespasses, while we were dead in sins, he made us alive in Christ. Not only that, he raised us up. He only had to raise us up a couple millimeters because... Heaven isn't high in terms of distance. It's high it's in terms of dimension. He raises, it means he lifts our soul and spirits up to sit together in the heavenly places with Christ. That is to have a new means of perception and a new horizon to view and a new way of thinking with the mind of Christ. Rectification then is an ongoing process. We're not perfect and we won't be until resurrection transforms the body of our sinfulness, the body. But rectification, justification, and sanctification are ongoing acts. What Christ finished in the days of his flesh, Christ does continually in the Holy Spirit, in the act of rectifying, in the act of 
sanctifying us, which is really one process, not two. It should not have been distinguished by theologians. That's, a, that's coming down the road. God sets right those who are dead in sins by making them alive with Christ. The law can't do that. The law can't come up to someone dead in trespasses and sins and say, be alive. God can do that. And he does it in Christ. The law is incapable of justification or righteousness, and it's incapable of giving life. Paul gets to that really strongly in Galatians 3.21. What the law could not do, we're going to a deeper heart of Romans now, which is make righteous and give life. God did. By sending his son in the likeness of flesh like ours under the dominion of sin. In other words, if you saw Christ, you'd think he was just another one of us under the dominion of sin. He looked like any other person under the dominion of sin, but he wasn't under the dominion of sin. And he became sin for us and was made alive so that he lives unto God. And you were crucified with him. But Romans 8.3 is the kicker because what the law could not do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of flesh like ours under the dominion of sin and by condemning sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh of the son of God, his son on the cross, so that the righteousness, there it is again, the righteousness which the law requires Now you say, what does the law require as righteousness? 613 commandments of the Levitical law? No. Jesus said it all hangs on this. The whole law hangs on this. In fact, all the prophets, all the requirement of the law and the prophets together is that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these, all the prophets and all the law hang. So we are going to fulfill the righteousness of the law. How? By walking in the spirit and not in the flesh in Romans 8, 4. The righteousness of the law, the the law requires is love for God and for others. How does God do that? How does God enable that? Well, he gives us the gift of his own love and he pours out that love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5. The love for God and God's love for us and our love for others is all part of one gift of God that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the righteousness of the law, which is love. And it's really the Spirit. It is God in us both willing and doing. That's Romans 8.4. Just a hint of where we're going. So then, I'm going to skip a whole paragraph here because I see the clock. So we'll continue along this line. No one can boast of a righteousness that comes by the law because righteousness cannot come about by the law. Sin has hijacked the law. Remember, I used to talk about the hijack of the zodiac. The stars speak of the glory of Christ. There are 12 vignettes in the stars, which we now call the zodiac. Originally, Christ was understood to be portrayed in all of those. His victory over Draco, his birth of a virgin in Virgo. All of the 12 constellations pictured Christ. But then the zodiac was hijacked. And so if you drive down on the way to driving down to Florida, I would see palm readers. And I'd see people that would read your horoscopes and That's Satan hijacking the Zodiac. But sin has also hijacked the law. Sin is shown in its exceeding sinfulness in Romans 7 by the fact that it's taken something righteous, pure, holy, and good, the law of God through Moses, and hijacked it for its own use. So the hijacked law, hijacked by sin, and here's a guy in Romans 7, 7 to 25, under The hijacked law, trying to be righteous by a law that sin hijacked. 
Now, there's a movie coming out called Seven Days at Entebbe, and I've always been fascinated. I read about it the day it ha- the days after it happened. A plane was taken over in Entebbe, I believe in Ethiopia, by terrorists. And so that plane was hijacked. Jonathan Netanyahu, who is the brother of the present prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, led a raid on that plane, rescued all the people, killed all the terrorists, and was the only casualty himself leading from the front in that miraculous rescue. And that's what Christ did. He came in like Jonathan Netanyahu and rescued everybody on the hijacked plane. Sin hijacked the law, and we were all dead in sin, and we were all, it was finished. And Christ led from the front, and he was the casualty in rescuing us. Now the plane can go where it will. Now God can give us freely all things. Sin has hijacked the law and has used it for its own death-producing purpose. And this will prepare you to read Romans 7. This is the crux of the problem in the speech in character of Romans 7, 7 to 25. We also have in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, 6 through 9, the letter of Torah, the letter kills, the letter produces death and condemnation, whereas the ministry of the Spirit brings what? Life and righteousness. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. The person enslaved to the law as hijacked by sin is only delivered through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and through the Holy Spirit. So it's so unusual that Paul, who was zealous for the Torah, was met by a man who was observant of the Torah, whom God made go out to meet him in Damascus. And this man who was a law-observant Jew recognized that a change of ages was coming and it was going to be introduced by this Saul, this blinded man who looks so pitiful, being led by the hand by his entourage because he couldn't even see at all. And he was once almighty and strong and saying, I'm going to slaughter these people in Acts 9.1. He was breathing out his intent to slaughter the church. But the lamb was already slaughtered. So you're going to be slaughtered now, Saul. So then, back to Jeremiah and we'll close. Let the one who boasts, boast in this. That he or she understands and knows that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness in the earth for these things constitute my will. Hey, brother Saul, receive your sight. The God of our fathers has chosen you out for himself to know his will. These things are my will, says the Lord. Write about them, Saul of Tarsus. Write about what constitutes my will. God's will here in Jeremiah 9.24 is to thalema. Again, ta, the article, which gives it some strength. Ta thalema. It's kind of like thelma without the eta. Thalema. Add an eta, you have thalema. That's the word he uses in Jeremiah nine twenty four. Boast that you know the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness in the earth for these things constitute my will. Now thelema or thelema is a word that melds or blends two ideas. And get this now because this is also very important to the whole of the Roman epistle and all the Bible for that matter. Thelema blends two things. Desire and will. Desire and will. It blends those two ideas into one. That's why translations that render the last part of Jeremiah 9.24 as, you may even have a translation like that, in these things I take pleasure. People would say, this is my bliss. 
As we said last week, if you insist on knowing my bliss, kiss the son lest the father be angry. Now, in these things I delight. I delight in these things, says another translation. They grab the point, but not completely. They're on the money when they say I delight in these things. They're on the money, but they're not complete. Thelema melds will and desire, or thelema. God will do all of his will and all of his desire. In other words, he will do all of his will and all that he desires. And he desires that all people be saved and come to the extraordinary knowledge of the truth that's embodied in his son. I will do all my will. I will do all my will. Isaiah 46, 10. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, especially 4. I do not delight in anyone perishing, so no one will perish. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. I will show mercy to all. I delight in it. It's my bliss. I would say to my fellow clergy and preachers today, I hope you don't have a problem with that. And I mean my pre fellow preachers across the country. God's desire is not an impotent wish. He doesn't just desire and wish like a child ready to blow out his birthday candles, all six of them. He doesn't just desire and wish impotently. His desire reveals his passion as a God of pathos and deep and abiding love for his creation, for each of you, each of us. His will reveals his, also his settled resolution, his immutable, unchangeable resolution which cannot be hampered. Saw another movie recently called Unstoppable. It was about a train out of control. And I thought, there's God's will. Unstoppable. It can't be hampered, thwarted, or blocked. So he does not only desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, a knowledge that we can't grasp on our own, an epignosis knowledge. It can only be brought to us by the enlightening of our eyes by the Holy Spirit. He is not only desirous that all people are saved, he has resolved and firmly decreed that this would be the case. Because in the doctrine of double predestination, he predestined one person and one only to experience his rejection, and his name is Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham might come to all the nations and was made to be sin. And he is a very, verily the elect one, says 1 Peter 1.20, revealed in these last times for us as the elect one. So when the righteous one lived because of his faithfulness to death, because I live, says the righteous one, you will live also. He didn't just say that to you individually. He does. But he says that to all humankind. You could even trace every possible sin, even the most egregious and heinous and ugly and atrocious sins. What's that person's problem? They don't have the life of Christ. They are without the life of Christ. What's the solution? God will make them alive in Christ. That's the solution. For in Adam all die. As in Adam, all die. All is all-inclusive and absolute. So in Christ, all, absolutely, without exception, will be made alive. Not made alive to be thrown into hell to suffer forever with an incorruptible body. That's absurd, obscene, heretical, 
And, well, it's just plain stupid. Made alive with Christ's life. So then, he has done it at the cross. For there, in Christ, God reconciled the world to himself while not charging the world with its trespasses. Now, if Adam's sin and all the sins that increase because of the giving of the law and since the giving of the law are more impressive to you than Christ being made sin for us, you're not going to preach the right gospel. You're not going to understand it. God made Jesus to be sin in his death, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him by his life. How much more being saved from wrath by his blood shall we be saved by his life? Because I live, you will live also. That's John fourteen nineteen again, in case you forgot. Christ was made the curse for us so that the blessing of the promise made to Abraham would come to us in him. 3.13 and 14 of Galatians. Now, finally, and this really is, keeps on being the heart of the matter. In Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, Paul speaks of the mystery of God's will. By any accounting, I believe Ephesians was written before Romans. The best estimates on Romans... 52 in the spring of 52 A.D. to the A.D. 57. Arguments are good for both. Ephesians was written earlier. Paul was in prison. He introduces himself as the slave of Christ, but he also calls himself Paul a prisoner of the Lord for your sake. Kind of like saying, if it wasn't for prison, I couldn't have sat down and wrote. It speaks of the mystery of God's will, and that is Thelema. The mystery of God's will, Thelema, Thelema, which according to his good pleasure. Now, that's another word. Here he is. He stacks words on gifts. Now he's stacking words on will, eudokia, E-U-D-O-K-I-A, eudokia. That's also his will. But it has something to do with his pleasure here. And when I read Kazeman on Romans from the 1980 book that he wrote on that, he says, Eudokia is the desire part of his will. It's, quote, by Kazeman, the pleasure which, assert, which asserts itself graciously. The pleasure which exerts itself graciously. His will the mystery of his will is according to his pleasure to exert itself graciously, which he planned in Christ. In verse 10, this is my translation, to set his house completely in order. Who, what is God's house? The heavens and the earth. The universe. How does he set his house in order, and that's the tr true translation of verse, in the fullness of times to set his house completely in order by bringing everything in all their times together in Christ. Everything in all their times together in Christ. Both things in heaven and things on earth in him. I execute mercy. I do mercy. I do judgment. I do righteousness over the earth. How? By the mystery of God's will. These are my will, says God. And here it is. To bring everything in all their times together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Verse 11, in whom we were also called, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works everything Toward the decision, that is the firm resolution of his will. Now, apart from knowing this mystery, says Romans 11.25, Paul said, I want you to know a mystery, lest you should be wise in your own estimation. If you don't know this mystery, you're going to be what? You're going to boast in your own wisdom, and you're going to be a fool. 
If you're a Christian, it says you know the gospel and you boast in God that you know God and you know and you boast that you know him and other people don't know him. And you boast in the law or you boast in what you've done. You boast in your performance. You boast in your testimony. But you don't know the mystery. He said you're only wise in your own estimation. You're a legend in your own mind. And then he explains part of the mystery in Romans 11. It's called pars pro toto, a word that we're going to keep bringing in. Pars pro toto. Sometimes he talks about the mystery, but he only speaks of a part of it to represent the whole. Part of the mystery is that God has allowed a part of Israel to be hardened for a time, temporarily, until the full totality of the Gentiles comes in. Then all Israel will be saved. Somebody says, well, there it is. That's the mystery. No, that's pros pro toto, the mystery. That's a part of the mystery spoken of to represent the whole. The Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow beneficiaries, equal beneficiaries with the Jews because of the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, 6. That's the mystery. Yeah, it's not the whole mystery, though. That's prars pro toto, P-A-R-S-P-R-O-T-O-T-O. Toto too, Toto too. Even Toto's coming to the new creation. Click your heels on that one. Now, someday I'll give you the story of Wizard of Oz and you'll not want to watch it. But anyways, it's about an atheist that, never mind. But, pars pro Toto. So the dispensationalists say, here's the, here's the mystery that now the Jews and Gentiles are one new humanity. Yeah, that's pars pro toto. But in toto, the mystery in its totality isn't just Jew and Gentile together. Jew and Gentile together as one new humanity is just a depiction of one day the universal reconciliation of all beings in heaven, all beings on earth, everything from principalities to parsley, reconciled together in the, under the headship of Jesus Christ, who then turns to the Father and leads a chorus of universal praise to the Father, as we found in Romans 15, 9. We're early joiners in that chorus, that's all. So apart from knowing this mystery, which is the mystery of God's action in Christ and in the Spirit in a universal reconciliation, what is the mystery in toto then? The mystery in toto is God's will to reconcile all things in the heavens and earth, to bring them all together anakephalaio under the headship of Christ. That's the mystery in toto. What we have now that we never had before and are only getting since about 2013 and it's coming now into fruition and into its full focus and clarity is the mystery in toto, the totality of the mystery which Paul also mentions in the very last verses of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery kept silent for ages gone by in the words of the prophets, but now made known, apocalyptically made known by the command of the eternal God for the obedience of faith, that means for the allegiance of all the nations to his son as king, to God, the only, wait a minute, the only wise God. Let no one boast in their wisdom. Let no one boast in their wisdom. To the only wise God whose wisdom is a plan of universal salvation be glory and honor forever. If you don't know why you're here, I'm telling you why you're here. Nobody, and I mean nobody, has ever exegeted this mystery verse by verse through Romans. They have taught about it theologically, where you can argue about it, by other theologians. They brought the viewpoint through books and through popular books. They have not taught Romans verse by verse with the light of the universal purpose of God on while they were writing. That's why we're here. That's why it's different. That's why we come to church. 
We don't want to be wise in our own estimation. And this yields a unity, a unity among believers, a respect, and even a respect for unbelievers, because as Paul said, I don't know anybody after the flesh anymore. I know no person after the flesh anymore because I know that all people will be in Christ one day. He died for all, then all have died. And if all died in him, then all must be made alive in him. So I have to look at every single person now, and this happened to me. It's a weird transformation. Every person you look at, no matter what they are, who they are, where they come from, or what they've done, you see them as one day being in Christ, made alive with the life of Christ, and you can't know him after the flesh anymore. You can't do it. You can't do it anymore. Amen.